Welcome, everyone, to the AI in Business podcast. I'm Matthew DeMello, Senior Editor here at Emerge Technology Research. Today's guest on the program is Alberto Rizzoli, co-founder and CEO of V7. V7 is an AI-first software company that builds a high-quality image and video training platform for model and database management. Alberto joins us on the program to discuss what generative AI capabilities will mean across industries and the biggest challenges facing enterprise leaders trying to integrate bespoke Gen AI models into their organizations. Today's episode is sponsored by V7, and without further ado, here's our conversation. Alberto, thanks so much for being with us today on the podcast. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. So we're talking about large language models across industries with many different examples and use cases. As we see these technologies, especially bespoke versions, begin to get adopted per organization, what do you see as the biggest challenges facing enterprises in integrating these models into their organizations? Yeah, everyone wants a ChatGPT that fully understands their business. But the difference is that there is no easy way to scrape the intranet of a company to learn all this stuff and then create a model that learns this efficiently yet. But a lot of tools are being developed. And I think at the moment, the hardest challenge is to find the right problems to apply these large language models to or any foundation model to that are particularly accurate. And secondarily, building the right data infrastructure internally so that employees themselves can contribute to the knowledge of these models. Ultimately, it's not just going to be the machine learning team training them in air quotes, but rather everyone that's working within a business contributing to this knowledge bank of a, of a large model that can be used as a co-pilot for products, as well as an internal sage, if you will, for all kinds of policies, wikis, advice, and help. Absolutely. And I, I like how you phrased it from the beginning in terms of you need to find the right problem, because I think a problem downwind from development and customer experience that we've been fighting over inside and out of Silicon Valley, even long before that 1997 Apple Developers Conference. I know I know people love to share this video as a way of, of showing how Steve Jobs was polite to a guy who was mean to him. But if you really look at the substance of that, video, it's, it's, it's quite famous. But if you look at the substance of that video, the developer is arguing, we have this awesome technology. Why aren't we selling it? It. And Steve Jobs replies, because the customer doesn't have a need for your, you know, nuclear grade JavaScript, you know, there's just no problem that that solves for the customer. And, yeah. you know, 25 years later, we're 26 years later, we're still having this discussion in terms of just knowing you have the nail that needs the hammer or or rather trying to find the nail that needs the hammer in terms of LLMs, especially in the in the problems that they're suited for the nails that they are meant to hammer. What should organizations, regardless of sector, be looking for in terms of the nails that LLMs can hammer or the business problems that LLMs are best suited to address? It's generally things that are driving revenue. So products is right. our main recommendation. Whatever product means to you, even beyond financial services, even if you're a, an insurance company or a manufacturing company, the most important thing to apply AI to is the biggest, most revenue-driving problem. And you have to think of AI as this kind of nuclear hammer that can hit most nails. Yeah. But 
it hits them poorly until you really, really refine the hammer's ability to hit things. We use ChatGPT and we're amazed at what it can do, but actually applying these to bespoke problems can be hard. It's easy to get to 85% accuracy. It's easy to do a cool demo for your boss. It's really hard to get to 99% accuracy, and it's even harder to replace a human function. In fact, the most useful problems are the hardest problems that become co-pilots to humans or co-pilots to employees or users that are performing a particularly difficult function. That's where you want to apply AI to a system as much as possible. And we see this being applied all the way from recommending people and how to fill out particularly difficult forms that they need to look at other references to, all the way to keyhole surgery, where surgeons are asking Mm -hmm. for assistance from AI because they're performing a task that is particularly challenging for a human and they have to do it many hours a day for multiple hours. And so these are the really difficult problems for us to apply this still early stage technology to. AI may seem mature, but it's actually just about to make its way into regular software development. It's still considered a science by by most, most degrees. Yeah, let's actually dive into that difference because I know I know this is big at, at V7. I think it could be very illuminating for our audience in terms of we haven't really seen necessarily AI-driven software. And there's there's a difference between, you know, AI capabilities, you know, in the hardware and where this brings about solutions that can be used by everybody and be leveraged in, in you know, distinct platforms. Tell us a little bit about that difference and how business leaders should think of them, especially as we see these models start to proliferate across financial services. Yeah, indeed. I think the right way to think of it is AI will eventually be a part of regular software development. It's becoming that. Mm. And it's becoming almost this layer of magic that you can add to perform a function that has more or less unlimited possibilities. That could be being able to converse with your product. The product itself can converse back to the user, suggesting how the product itself should be used Mm. to the best of its abilities. It can pick up anomalies that would normally take mind-boggling amounts of time to write the right code to detect. The best way to think of it as product leaders is, or or generally as as leaders within a business, is to think of how your product can be transformed if the smartest person who has ever used that product could be sitting next to the user, whether it's an internal employee using an internal tool or your actual end user and customer, and suggesting them where to click and what to do. That is effectively the promise of what large models are able to to convey and to complete. And it doesn't just stop at conversational agents. These models are also able to interpret images. They're also able to perform actions. So you can ask them to give you a prediction for this month's sales forecast, and it should be able to crunch the numbers and present them back to you. So these are all functionalities that can be integrated within products today. In your last two answers, you were talking about, you know, where this will be integrated in softwares across the board. I think, you know, across sectors, business leaders are seeing this sort of, you know, new sort of product and out of the box solution, leveraging models that can be launched in days, not months or years. I know on this show, we we really love to emphasize that you know, even if you can launch it in a few days, the actual process and the commitment is much longer than that. You're, you know, you're getting a puppy and that puppy is a, is a responsibility. But just from your point of view, what do you see as the dangers of using out of the box solutions too hastily across industries? 
Yeah, it, it can be very tempting to just take GPT-4 or one of the other large models and start using it to solve a problem that is normally solved with AI models. But we must observe what the successfulness for implementation look like under the hood. And today, few of them are actually using foundation models. And this is counterintuitive. It's actually better to have a fine-tuned GPT-3 or a much smaller language model or even a much smaller vision models compared to something large like MedPalm to solve a very well-defined problem than to use these very large models. And in most cases in business, there are few very well-defined problems within processes, manufacture a production line, and we have a, a number of expected ranges of defects. So we don't need something that is mm -hmm. versatile enough that can write Shakespeare for you and detect defects. We just want something that is 99% accurate at detecting a defect. And today, the most reliable way of doing that is still using small models. But we will be seeing these large models become better and better to the point where it is likely that they will eclipse small models in performing this function as long as the compute is there. They're still going to be relatively heavy to, to, to bear. So my mm -hmm. advice is when prototyping, using a large model is useful. Sometimes it can be a large language model. Today, there's large multimodal models that can interpret also images. However, past the prototype, Ask your data scientists whether it's the right move to continue using these expensive large models that hallucinate versus using something that is smaller and it's more of a, you know, rather than being a Swiss army knife, it's more of a screwdriver because you know exactly right. the kind of screw that you need to turn. Absolutely. I think that screwdriver analogy and, and ask our head of research. He pays me for the metaphors around here. That's a very good one. <laughs> but just in but but really just in, in, in terms of that analogy, I want to get a sense of of how the ecosystem would work in an organization between multiple models. From what you're describing and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, would it be that you'd have a larger language, more foundational model that could speak to a lot of different workflows, but maybe not have direct yeah contact with the customer. Yeah, I think I'm yeah. I think I'm getting it. And then you'd have the smaller models that would work on specific workflows and those would probably actually have a way closer proximity to the customer. Exactly. This is something we're very excited about and we've been building into our platform for some time to to prepare for this paradigm that we are betting heavily that will come true. And some of you mm. might have read the the Kahneman book uh, Thinking Fast and Slow where you talk about these Oh, yeah, love it. These two sides of the brain, one thinks quickly and it reacts to things and it's, it, it notices. It is a fast thinking part of the brain. And it's very similar to the models that have dominated the deep learning space from 2015 until a year ago. These are the object detection models, the text classification models, where at a glance, you can tell if a, if a sentence is offensive or it is encouraging. At a glance, you can tell if a car is coming your way or if there is a fracture in a bone. A radiologist can definitely tell most of this stuff at a glance. And then there is this thinking slow part, and that is where large language models excel. And they can become orchestrators of all these tools, including small models, including software as we know it. So these tools, could be, these large models can use small models to detect a fracture. They can look into the, the PACS system for the electronic health records of a patient and then wonder what the best patient pathway for this person is. And that is the slow thinking part that takes the role closer to that of an analyst in today's world of business than that of a right. radiologist maybe that has looked at images or a QA person in the case of, of manufacturing. So it's presenting a higher level, simply for, for, for the sake of the, the high level information of value, and it's able to adopt 
all the possible other AI models that are available to a business. Absolutely. When we were asking before about the best ways to find a nail that an LLM will be the proper hammer for. You, you were talking about you always want to tie it to revenue. And I, w- I was wondering if you have any at least best practices for at least tying specifically LLMs to core business goals, whether or not that has to do specifically with language or that language is always a, a parameter for how to look at this, or is it more agnostic than that? Is it more open-ended just from what we're seeing in use cases across sectors? Two popular uses that have been successful in the use of LLMs. One is software copilots, which are Mm user-facing. And these are changing the way a piece of software can be used by turning it into a conversation. And I think one of the better examples out there has been how Shopify has created this sidekick system, which is effectively a copilot that teaches you how to be an entrepreneur and suggests how you use the software. So for those that have a, a PLG mindset, It is the best way to resurrect customers, to guide them through their use of ultimately your product. This is not for everyone, though. Most enterprises, most companies don't have a product like Shopify. And one of the best returns on investment in using LLMs is actually in analyzing large corpuses of data. So if you're a hedge fund and you need to look through hundreds of documents with dozens of pages each to look for information, these language models are able to vectorize all this information, search through it, and present you a coherent response to a question that queries all of them. They're also becoming excellent at doing things like large-scale document processing. We're seeing a lot of that. And so a a good way to think of it is back-office processes are seeing very high ROI, as well as some user-facing functionalities, although these require a team that truly understands the user experience of LLMs. So if that is not within your business today, I would recommend you to wait and and let some mm-hmm. of the other do the way. Right. And and correct me if I'm wrong, especially for, for how you're talking about intelligent document processing and even articles, research that I've that I've done in this area. That seems to me where that's that's going to be a lot more automation rather than humans in the loop. And obviously for, you know, customer experience pipelines, anything really touching the customer, but also a, a wealth of use cases outside. We're going to be seeing co-pilots and humans, especially with their expert feedback, become more important than, than ever, especially in refining those smaller models to those particular workplace tasks. I I just want to make sure I have the division right and and ask, what's a better way to think of you know, human capital as we start to see these use cases proliferate of an intelligent document processing, probably less humans, customer experience, probably more humans. Is it just, you know, is the deciding factor, does it need a co-pilot? Well, it should use a human. Or is it is there a larger framing that, that business leaders can use to start allocating their human capital in the right direction? So I think one, one piece of advice I would always give is never alienate your humans. They're ultimately both the people that will teach the AI, will use the AI, and they will have to be good friends. So the implementation of AI should always be seen as a way of supercharging the talent that is already there. and you know, as folks at OpenAI say, the neural networks are imitation machines or transformers are imitation machines. So your AI will never be better than the humans that are training it. It will match the capabilities of the best humans that are available to yourself. And once they become co-pilots to them, it's important to make sure that they are taking away the most tedious work from them. In many cases, this can be filling in the easy part of a form in a document processing case where you're transcribing 
documents in a back office element, or maybe you're looking through annual reports to extract information. And AI can do some of the most tedious stuff. And then one of the hard things to implement, which we recommend shopping out for tools for, is to determine what are the tasks that humans should be doing. And those tasks that humans should be doing that your AI is not sure of, or your implementation of AI is not sure of, are your goldmine for improving the performance of your AI. That's actually where you create IP unique to your business and data unique to your business that gives you that edge in AI. Similar to the data you may already have collected today, the stuff that AI fails at and that your people are able to correct with their skill sets, that is actually what makes your AI better day by day. And it is the most valuable resource you can have. I can picture a clear example, at least for myself, but it sounds like you you might have a an, an example yourself there that, that might be clarifying. Is there an industry use case you could cite for, for that last answer? Yeah, for example, in let's let's stick to a let, let's look at a manufacturing case. You might have an anomaly sure. that is detected by an AI. If the AI is not sure about the anomaly, maybe because it's out of distribution in its training set. It is mm. a a scratch in a piece of silicon that has never seen before. It's a scratch that was caused by some very strange, rare event. Maybe maybe a bird entered the the, the factory and one of its feathers touched sure. the, one of the manufacturing lines. <laughs> it happens. Some really black swan event. You know, these types of other distribution errors, models should be able to reason through whether the example is out of distribution. Some of them can now put a confidence score that is reliable. And these are routed to humans. And this routing to humans can be done in software where a human is notified. And then that image is tagged as something that needs to be used for retraining. The same goes for all medical cases. You can use a consensus system where a human always needs to agree with the model for the model's output to be released until you're absolutely confident about a distribution of data that the model will process. As soon as something is outside of this distribution, famous OOD examples out of distribution, then you always want to have a human involved. Effectively, the secret is don't be a hero. AI is only good at answering questions about what's in its training set. If something is outside of its training set, it will give you an answer confidently but it will be a guess. And that's where you want people to be involved and give it more distribution data and and expand the distribution and that knowledge. Yeah, and something I know I've heard about is basically that confidence paradox or that confidence dilemma of it said so confidently that the human is inclined to believe it all at the same time. It is just a guess. So is is that just a matter of training in terms of your labor force, in terms of ingratiating that you never, ever, ever accept necessarily an AI answer at face value? You want to to double check it? Or what would be the process in, in your mind for at least mitigating that for the least risk? Yeah, because it's AI's reward function is to try and convince a human labeler on the other side that the answer is correct. Right. Hence why it's it's often, it's really humble. And actually adding this humility of, mm, I'm not sure I can help you with this, that some more modern language models are doing, is actually not a small task. And we're still discovering ways in which it can actually admit its own mistakes. The best advice so far is to know the distribution of your data. Think of it as a bell curve. Most of the tasks that you're completing in any line of business are repetitive to some degree, and they fall within the middle of the bell curve. Anything that's outside of the bell curve should be classified by the model. You can either include that in a prompt. If you're using a a computer vision model, you can either rely on the output confidence score of the model itself, or you can classify the image as something that is unusual based on certain visual characteristics that it may 
may detect. Does it look like the other images or not? And when those occur, these can be routed to a human review. And there are certain workflow systems for AI that you can use to enable that. And these, these are software that can be purchased off the shelf to make sure that your production AI doesn't eventually land mistakes in production. To be remembered that once something enters a training set and contains an error, rarely does it make its way out. And your AI will be yeah. further stunted by this bad training set example. So training data needs to be religiously manicured when when created and and really given the right level of respect because it's a, it, it can become a, a speed bump that you'll never detect afterwards. It also sounds like a matter of hierarchies and expertise and at least making sure that, you know, whoever is handling the output is, you know, a radiologist who can tell that that is not cancer. That is not, you know, that is not a broken bone. If even if the AI is telling me it's a broken bone, I know that's a very simple example. That's especially in healthcare. That's that's almost kind of a, a ludicrous result that it would ever tell you something's a broken bone when it's not. It, the the LLMs themselves are, or at least the, these systems are usually not that wildly far off. But just for the sake of an example, you want somebody who will be able to tell who has seen those X-rays a zillion times to be judging those outputs. You don't want a physician's assistant necessarily or, you know, someone a little bit further down the the totem pole necessarily in healthcare to be judging those outputs. And whenever we talk about, you know, the human feedback, it's really expert feedback just to just to put a finer point on your answer. I think that just about wraps us up, at least for this episode, to at least go over the basics. But Alberto, thank you so much for being with us today. And we're very excited to have you back. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. I think before we close out today's episode, it's worth mentioning, especially as we enter this new frontier of generative AI capabilities, that I think the wall has finally come down for the most part between business leaders and developers. That's been up at least since... I would say the 1997 Apple Developers Conference, there's a very famous video that comes from that conference. I may have brought it up on the show before, but I think it's worth mentioning in this context today as well. In the video, you can find it on YouTube, a developer chastises Steve Jobs for not endorsing the very powerful, very new, and very unique JavaScript capability that is vastly superior than Bitmap, at least at that time. And... He's chastising Steve Jobs because Steve Jobs is not integrating JavaScript into new Apple products and the developer sees this as asinine because JavaScript is just so powerful. And Steve Jobs counters the developer saying that JavaScript is awesome. You're right in many ways from a technical standpoint, but at the end of the day, the customer just doesn't have a need for all the capabilities that JavaScript brings to the table versus Bitmap. And I think the vast majority of conversations that have been transpiring between data science teams, IT teams, and management when it comes to AI capabilities basically revolves around the same tenets of that conversation. And at this point of generative AI, where these capabilities are so integrated into our lives that my grandma can mention how they're put together through machine learning, etc. I think at that point where developers just aren't that special in terms of their expertise in knowing the ins and outs of this technology, that it just becomes so much more apparent that generative AI is a heavy hammer 
and it should be built for hammering certain kinds of nails. And really, it's a cause for this wall to come down, as I was saying at the beginning of this little tangent, that especially the development side, especially the data science team side, needs to not focus on where they can bring the most firepower, where they can sell the customers a rocket ship, but ask themselves, does the customer need a rocket ship when they're just running their own groceries? Or do they need just a faster, more capable, more autonomous vehicle? (laughs) If I can venture into the auto manufacturing space for a second. But Alberto really, I think, got this point across in a lot of what he was saying about the adoption challenges in this area and also how data teams are, are coming to this realization. And I think it's a real sea change moment that we're seeing both in popular culture and tech. On behalf of Daniel and the entire team here at Emerge, thanks so much for joining us today, and we'll catch you next time on the AI and Business Podcast. 